Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. We're launching this podcast to highlight the stories of everyday community leaders who break down barriers to entry for under, underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs. Today, we'll be speaking with Annika Horn. Welcome, Annika. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. So, Annika, tell me a little bit about the work you do and a little bit about how you got started on this work. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I am the heart and soul behind Social Ventures, where I create and curate insights, resources, and a peer community for impact makers who believe in the power of entrepreneurship for social change. So, in other words, I have for a long time been very passionate about not so much the entrepreneurs, but the people who are working in the system to help entrepreneurs thrive. What I've noticed throughout the years is that these sort of systemic thinkers are never in the spotlight, always operate sort of behind the scenes to help entrepreneurs build businesses and scale and grow. But um we need these people behind the scenes who are making connections, who are helping the ecosystem build up trust and a sense of collaboration. So I have been really passionate about finding those people, a lot of whom you've interviewed on your podcast, which is why I'm so excited to be here. And Social Ventures was designed or created out of a desire to shine a really embarrassingly bright light on those people and tell their stories so that we can learn from each other how to do this work sustainably without burning ourselves out while also doing a really, really good job at what we're doing. So where are you based? And also, very curious, how did you get started on this mission? Oh, God, um, I could go back 16 years, I think, but I'll try to keep it short. Uh, currently based in North Carolina, moved down here from Toronto. Before that, I was in Virginia and before that in Germany and a few other countries. Um, the reason I am on this path today is that I used to work in an accelerator for social entrepreneurs in Germany, running a global program for young social entrepreneurs. But as you and I know, and, and I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, a lot of these systemic challenges we're trying to solve for need systemic solutions. So the idea that any one individual entrepreneur can create systemic change is really kind of ridiculous on its head. So for the longest time, I've been really interested in finding out who are these systemic change makers and what kind of collaborations do we need to really move the needle in a meaningful way. So I originally started out with social ventures in 20. 15, I think, where I put on a backpack and started traveling around Europe on my own dime and then later Australia and America to interview different support programs for social entrepreneurs, boot camps, incubators, accelerators, so on and so forth, to gain a better understanding of these support programs, everything from what were their revenue models, what did the curriculum look like, how did they manage mentors, so on and so forth. But notice throughout this research, after I think about 50 organizations that I was much more interested in the people who were running those programs and who were coming face to face with the entrepreneurs every day. So after some time in Richmond, Virginia, where I spent three and a half years as an active ecosystem builder, 
I sort of changed direction for Social Adventures to step away from the organizations and really start working more one-on-one and with groups of ecosystem builders who were working in different institutions to support entrepreneurs. And looking at that journey, what were some big lessons learned that made you realize that you need to build this infrastructure up? I think the key lesson I learned was because I was particularly focused on social entrepreneurship, that we were giving a lot of ourselves in a space that is often equated with a nonprofit mindset. What I mean by that is we're not just trying to build businesses, we're trying to build businesses with a bottom and sometimes triple bottom line. So trying to not only be financially sustainable, but also create social and environmental impact. You could think of companies like Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's who have this double or triple bottom line. What that means on the support side is you often find ecosystem builders who are deeply dedicated to seeing entrepreneurs and their communities thrive. And I know that you've experienced some of this one-on-one as well, where it's not the kind of work that you start at 9 a.m. and you clock out at 5 p.m. and you go home and don't think about work. I have found that the most dedicated ecosystem builders I've had the pleasure to talk to think about their work constantly and are so devoted and go above and beyond of what's possible to see these entrepreneurs thrive. And what I've taken away from that experience is that we have to be really incredibly careful to not burn the candle on both ends. Because if we are here to do this work long-term and systemic change does take a long time, then we really need to make sure that we're doing excellent work while leading a lifestyle that allows us to recover, rest, and recharge our batteries before we go back to work the next day. Yeah, that is so incredibly hard (laughs) coming from somebody who uh, is so focused on creating change. Yeah. You know, I look at any downtime as time for creativity, which actually works against you because you want the downtime to be about downtime to then be creative. Uh, And I find it very hard sometimes to turn off my mind away from the challenges at hand uh, and some of this very complex work. Yeah. Do you have any examples, Annika, of somebody who's doing it really well or somebody you've admired who has this uh, innate sense of purpose, but yet is able to do this long term and kind of not burn themselves out? I would say I've interviewed over 60 ecosystem builders from all around the world by now. And I would say everybody who I ask about this says, I'm still work in progress. I'm still figuring this out. It's like this constant journey of balancing work and purpose and also downtime. I will say that one person who I think is doing a really good job is Isaac Jeffries, who works in Australia. He just had twins in the middle of a pandemic. He is uh, self-employed, but also working with some really reputable organizations in Australia and beyond. And he's an incredible incredibly creative person. So he has his head screwed on tight when it comes to drawing a line between work and purpose, creativity, and family. So I I do look up to him, which he may or may not know, but I think he's really onto something by balancing his time and knowing when he's going to focus and when he's going to take some time to either travel or learn or just simply spend time with his twins. Let's talk a little bit about your work and why the work you're doing is so incredibly important, even though we might not be able to kind of do that volume 
we have to do very similar work around telling stories. Mm-hmm. And you're an incredible storyteller and it comes so naturally to you. Can you speak to our audience about why storytelling is so important in moving the mission forward? Oh God, I don't even know where to start. Yes, I would love to. Thank you so much. So as I mentioned earlier, I think for the longest time, we've paid a lot of attention to the entrepreneurs themselves as the heroes, which we should, because they're really out there putting themselves on the line, taking on a lot of risk, working long hours. So these entrepreneurs are the heroes of the story. But as every successful entrepreneur will tell you, no one can do it alone. It does require a thriving startup community or ecosystem around them to really help them to do what they do best. And I was interested in those entrepreneurial stories, but I was even more interested in the systems behind these entrepreneurs to see who can thrive where and how come that a certain entrepreneur is more successful in Boulder, Colorado, as compared to, I don't know, Vancouver, Canada. So it really, it I became really passionate about sort of telling the stories of the people behind the scenes, which then led me to a great collaboration with Jeff Bennett and Jess Edwards um, in the year of 2020, where we had met a lot of incredible ecosystem builders who, because they're such servant leaders, are not very comfortable in the spotlight. But we were really touched by all the incredible work they were doing in their communities all throughout North America. But no one ever took the time to tell their story. And we were able to pull together as a pro bono project and run the Unsung Heroes of Ecosystem Building campaign. So basically interviewing, I think, north of 40 entrepreneurial ecosystem builders from all around the U.S. And just drilling a little bit deeper into common challenges, um, how they define success, how they understand ecosystem building, and putting them into the spotlight, at least for a little bit. And we didn't just do that because it might feel good or it's an interesting story to tell. But what we learned was because a lot of these community practitioners operate behind the scenes, they are not able to see who else is doing that work because there simply is no platform for these people to show up with the work they're doing. So I like to think that by lifting up these individual stories, we made these ecosystem builders visible to each other so that they may be able to reach out and learn from each other. And on a global scale, that is the work I'm doing at Social Ventures. I'm telling the stories of experts in this field in hopes of bringing them together so they can learn from each other. In 2020, for example, I hosted a round of fireside series where we sort of discussed and investigated the seven principles of successful entrepreneurial ecosystem building. And I had participants from India, from France, from Africa, from North America and Europe who were discussing different aspects of entrepreneurial ecosystem building and really bringing their personal experience from the field into the conversation, which allowed me to gain a lot deeper insights into how we might do this work more efficiently and catering to the needs of local communities. And of course, everybody who participated in those conversations was able to learn from each other. And I use all these insights and uh, streamline them and put them in a blog post and share them on my website so that everybody else who wants to learn more about successful and impactful entrepreneurial ecosystem building can learn that based on the conversations that we were able to curate together. 
Wow. I am a big fan of your work, Annika, and I've spent a lot of time looking at your website and all the stories that you've said, uh, that you've told, and uh, it never fails to inspire me. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So with that compliment, I'm going to ask you a hard question. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this question is hard because it gets it gets asked so many times. It's hard Mm -hmm. because it gets uh, asked a lot. And uh, as a result, the answers are so varied. So uh, two parts to this question. First, how would you define an ecosystem and how would you define an ecosystem builder? And this is, you know, you're the perfect person to ask this question, given that you spend so much time out speaking with these people and and measuring these uh, ecosystems. I define an ecosystem as the different actors in a community that have a shared interest in seeing entrepreneurs thrive. I know from personal experience that it's not just about having the right actors. So think about incubators, investors, entrepreneurs, mentors, co-working spaces, but more so about really nurturing a culture of trust and collaboration. That is easily said and really, really hard to do. So many ecosystem builders who I speak to tell me that in their communities, they experience silos and fragmentation and a lot of competition over scarce resources and different members of the community. So having people in the community who are able to look beyond sort of that competition and really rallying the community around what it is they're trying to do for entrepreneurs, that to me is an ecosystem builder. And an ecosystem builder to me isn't so much a a specific job description as it is a mindset. So in a lot of the interviews and a lot of the people I've met through social ventures, ecosystem builders really come in all shapes and sizes and forms. It could be an impact investor. It could be a social entrepreneur himself or herself. It could also be someone who runs an entrepreneurial support program. What really sets an ecosystem builder apart is the mindset that, A, there is enough for everybody. We don't have to compete for everything. And B, someone who really has the entrepreneur's needs at the focus of their work. So instead of thinking about, oh, what does this mean for my business or my organization? The key question is always, how will my actions inform entrepreneurs in my community? And that's a very, very different mindset than a lot of what we see in different ecosystems around the world. And that's not a bad thing. I just think it is a matter of maturity. I think young ecosystems see a lot of that scarcity mindset and competition, whereas more mature ecosystems are able to move beyond that. In most cases, because they have these incredible individuals called ecosystem builders who serve the entire community in a non-egotistical fashion. I think you hit the nail on the head with at least our perspective on ecosystem builders. What we've seen, Annika, in in our communities is that ecosystem building only works when there is a visionary as a convener. Yeah. Because, because without that, you end up with the scarcity mindset where everybody is competing. You need a convener who can help everybody else kind of gather around the fireplace or around the bonfire, right? And let them all know that there is enough for everyone, that we can all do great work and we can still 
have all the funding we need, make the impact we want to make. And in the absence of a visionary, sometimes ecosystems don't have the energy to coalesce or come together. And uh, I, I'm sure there are ecosystems that can do it on its own. Maybe when they reach a really high level of maturity, they can kind of work in a very completely decentralized way where yeah. they're all kind of being very symbiotic. But what we've seen is that those visionary leaders kind of let everybody stay in their lane knowing that we're all going to have enough. That, exactly. Right. That we can champion our cause together and we can rally around uh, the common cause and go find the money we need or find the the influence we need uh, to make things happen. Absolutely. And, uh, right. And those leaders are, uh, uh, are pretty evident when you go into an ecosystem just by the way the people describe them. Right. They are true servant leaders uh, who uh, would actually never put their name first to speak or uh, or talk about their work and everybody else is talking about their work. So uh, thank you for, for mentioning that. Of course. So let's uh, kind of go down that path. And can you highlight for us from your journey around the world, ecosystems that I guess not everybody's figured it out or nobody's mm-hmm. figured it out. Have you seen anywhere where the ecosystem is kind of coming together uh, either because of a visionary or it's reached a state of maturity where it is completely decentralized and is able to kind of elevate uh, everybody uh, in the ecosystem? Um, I'm, I'm, I got to be very honest. I'm very biased <laughs> just because I was able to spend enough time in Richmond, Virginia to dive really deep into the ecosystem and see and understand what was happening there. And I think they're doing a terrific job especially with regards of um, supporting entrepreneurs of color. And here's why I'm saying this. When I lived in Richmond, Virginia, about four or five years ago, we definitely had a few servant leaders who were doing great work, who were running through walls and really trying to rally the community around entrepreneurship. And they did a great job. Um, I have to shout out Todd Knuckles, who is the co-founder of Lighthouse Labs, together with Larkin Garby, who um, ran Lighthouse Labs, but also just created so many events and a true culture of community around entrepreneurship in Richmond. And from then on, it just continued to grow and morph. Uh, We had more support programs. We had fantastic co-working spaces open up, and we had a number of things closed down and shut down because they weren't needed or they weren't serving the market, as is really, really natural, I think, in any ecosystem. But I recently checked in back with a few people in Richmond, and I'm really, really pleased to see that there is now a group called the Jackson Ward Collective, which is solely focused on supporting Black entrepreneurs. So what I'm trying to say is that the support in Richmond, a a rather divided city, if we're talking in terms of race, the ecosystem for sort of your mainstream white entrepreneurs is mature. And we are now seeing a rise of more support for black entrepreneurs and people of color. The Jackson Wood Collective is run by three women, black entrepreneurs themselves, who have had enough of seeing other founders struggle and not being invited to the table. So instead they are opening up this support program sort of a hub, a platform for Black entrepreneurs of any size, any industry 
to start their businesses, grow their businesses, find investment, and really move the needle. And what's especially exciting about that is that Jackson Ward used to be a very um, affluential black part of town, sort of the equivalent of the of Black Wall Street, but in Richmond, Virginia which was then really, really run down for a number of decades. And now they're reviving this part of town, Jackson Ward, not just by opening up one or two businesses, but actually trying to buy real estate and really keeping the dollars moving in the black community to eventually buy the block. And when you talk to those three, you can see the passion, you can feel the desire to build on the legacy of all the black entrepreneurs who came before them and paving the road for all the other founders of color who are coming after them. It, it sounds fascinating. I'm going to go have to uh, look them up. Uh, can you speak to, uh, from your experience, why some of the communities that you operate in, just going back to the previous comment mm-hmm. around uh, the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset, uh, you know, what have you seen as best practice around uh, when we say, if you have the growth mindset, there is enough for everyone. How do we prove that through data? I know, you know, we can talk the talk, but uh, if somebody comes to you and says, listen, my problem is real. I have to either let my staff go or I need to get some grants to keep doing the good work. And the work is great. Uh, What do you say to that? Have you seen some of these real life dynamics play out? So I want to say that... um... It's so easy to say there is enough for everybody when the reality in the short term sometimes means there isn't enough funding for everybody. And I I sympathize. So I fully acknowledge that this is easier said than done. A very practical experience for me was uh, when we started working with co-starters. Enoch Elwell and Farid Koloko came to our community in Richmond and really gathered all of the different support organizations for entrepreneurs. And they brought us all in one room and asked us to leave our affiliations outside the door. So even though we knew each other, we weren't talking about this co-working space versus that co-working space. We were all in a room to talk about what our vision was for our city and what we wanted our city to be known for in terms of entrepreneurship. And so by trying to leave your uh, your ego outside and really putting the needs of entrepreneurs at the front and center we were able to create a vision that was shared by everybody in the room. And from there, we were able to take a step back and say how each of us wanted to contribute to that vision. The beauty of that approach is, A, you have a third party come in and facilitate that conversation who is not biased in any way. And B, it really allows everybody to focus on what they do best and not try to do everything else at the same time, which is where I think a lot of competition comes from. If you take co-working spaces, for example, we had a co-working space for lifestyle brands and one for tech entrepreneurs and one for women entrepreneurs. So at first sight, we just had a lot of co-working spaces and everybody would say this city isn't big enough for that many co-working spaces. But the truth is, because all of these co-working spaces were able to focus on what they do best and focus on their niche, they were actually able to coexist as long as they did. So I do understand the realities that there is not always enough for everybody in any given point of time. But I think if we look at the longer life cycles of an ecosystem, 
programs will fall into place where they are needed. And unfortunately, programs that are not needed or are not very impactful will go away sooner or later, which is incredibly hard. I think especially in COVID times, we've experienced this in a very accelerated fashion. But the truth is, if you are doing a good job creating impact and meeting a need in the market, you will continue to exist. If that's not the case, I think the choice is to either shut down or pivot in a way that you can truly and genuinely serve your ecosystem. Let's shift to uh, slightly uh, more macroeconomic level around mm -hmm. these ecosystems. Uh, and I'm thinking you know, specifically about uh, Amazon HQ2 uh, moving into Virginia. And when we speak with ecosystem builders who are economic developers, they look at job growth or bringing in these big companies as the way to grow ecosystems mm -hmm. when we know that you want to actually grow it uh, uh, in your community. You want to offer people jobs where they uh, live and yeah. improve the standard of living, right? Uh, how do you bring this message to the economic developers? I'd ask the same question to uh, Victor Wang uh, and also to Del Gaines. How yeah. do you tell the story of entrepreneurship and ecosystem building to economic developers who really see this as black and white, right? Like mm -hmm. they, uh, they're not getting press. If they're not bringing these big companies, they're not driving economic growth, which in some cases is actually a fallacy because most job creations happen through small businesses and the big corporates are usually net zero uh, yeah. jobs. How, how do you explain this uh, dichotomy to economic developers? I'm so glad you asked this, David, because I think it is a really, really, really important question that at first sight sort of puts a wedge between ecosystem builders and economic developers. But I have to credit Del Gaines, who really helped me understand with a lot of nuance what was going on in that specific case. And I think we see this replicated, this tension between grassroots ecosystem building and top-down economic development. So I'm so glad I get a chance to sort of share my perspective on this. Um, attracting and retaining large companies to a certain community can be really attractive. Obviously, if you get Amazon HQ into your community, there's a lot that you invest to make that happen and you hope to have a big payoff. As you said, sometimes that can even net out. But it's very attractive because it feels like you're getting a big impact for attracting one single company. I have understood, thanks to Del Gaines really taking the time to explain this to me. And if anyone has not listened to Del Gaines' episode on breaking down barriers, please go ahead and do. You will learn so much. Um, as he explained, um, this is just one way of doing economic development. Attracting companies and retaining them is one approach that does not fit all companies, uh, all communities, I apologize. So obviously what works for one doesn't work for everybody. And obviously if it's so easy in quotation marks um, to attract a company, it's also somewhat easy for another community to steal that company once they're looking to move somewhere else. So it is not a, a proven model of economic growth that is endless. Whereas as you said, Grassroots economic development focuses more on local businesses of any size, any industry. What I like about this, economic, uh, this ecosystem building approach is that often these companies just automatically fit the community 
in terms of the resources that are already there. So, for example, communities that used to be really, really strong in manufacturing, like we see in the Dan River region in southwest Virginia, are more likely to create startups and small businesses that are somewhat aligned with those values. So there's a lot of local value to creating startups and small businesses. And by that, I mean, they're more likely to continue to exist. I think the value of, um, there is value to both. There's value to top-down economic development if it's done right. And if it has the best interest of the community at heart, there's certainly a lot of value for grassroots ecosystem building because they too have the community's best interest at heart and are able to start companies that are more likely to grow slowly, but grow sustainably and really become a pillar of the community. Because if you think about it, what is Main Street downtown of any small city? It's all the shop fronts. It's the breweries, the coffee shops, the small mom and pop shops, the local crafts that make a place unique and they really speak to the character. So I think in terms of storytelling, it is magnificent if you can tell your community story through the Main Street shop windows. And as we're seeing right now, our communities need local businesses to stay in business, to keep money locally. Um, there is a statistic that I wish I could pull up perfectly, but Stephen Green in Portland, Oregon, did a TED Talk talking about if you buy your coffee at one of the large chains as compared to your local coffee shop, I think the local coffee shop retains 60 cent of every dollar that you spend there in the local community in terms of rent and taxes and employment and sourcing materials. Whereas if you spend it with one of the big chains, most of your local dollar goes abroad or goes to a different community where they are headquartered. And I think we have to be very mindful of keeping that economic power locally instead of um, pushing it in the pockets of Starbucks and Amazon. I will go even one step further, Annika, and uh, ask you about the whole startup versus small business mentality, mm -hmm. right? On the other end of the spectrum, you have these uh, uh, quotes, air quotes, cool ecosystem builders who think ecosystems are about these high growth, high tech startups. Oh. When, right? <laughs> when, like you mentioned, it's about these main street businesses. It's about people that are trying to make some money to survive or even thrive uh, and break these generations of poverty. Right? I look at it and I see uh, this so much focus on high tech, high growth startups yeah. when the, the real story is the main street story. Uh, 100, how, how long do you have? I 100% agree. Um, there are two key ideas that I want to start with here. Number one, I don't want to bash capitalism because I don't think it's a helpful narrative. But I will say that in many ways, when we talk about the economy, we are easily fixated on this idea of money, which is why high growth tech startups have become or became so sexy so quickly. Um, because they're tech-based, they're relatively easy to scale. We've had a few very successful examples so that everybody thinks you invest in a startup, you see hockey stick growth, and you're a made millionaire. I'm not saying that's not true. I know there are a lot of cases of startups or some cases of startups where that's the case. Who we don't hear about are the other 95% of high growth tech startups that never amount to anything. So I think people need to be very aware of that 
that really only sort of 5% of high growth tech startups live longer than five years and do so successfully. I think the other idea is that value creation is so much more than just the financial return on your financial investment. And that's really where small businesses and everything in between comes in. I hate the idea that startups are only there to generate money and grow for the sake of growth, which is why I'm so closely aligned with this whole ethos of Zebras Unite, who make the case against these so-called unicorns by saying, we need more zebras. We need companies with different colors and different stripes and different sizes who create value, not just for their shareholders, but create value for the communities in which they operate. So it's this more holistic view of entrepreneurship. And you will often find that a lot of local businesses, by definition, give back to the community because that's where they're from, that's where they live, that's where their kids grow up. A lot of local businesses are really dedicated to the communities that they're in, whereas a lot of high-growth startups are often forced to move wherever the money is and they can operate from different places. But I think the magic of small business and even medium-sized businesses is that they are anchored in a local community and see themselves as an active corporate citizen or business citizen in that community. For example, in enrichment, again, there's a brilliant, brilliant company called Bella Moonshine, and um, they are a premium moonshine product. Who knew that that was something we needed? But instead of just selling as much as they can, they always make a point of supporting a lot of local community events and startup events by donating moonshine and uh, bringing a bartender who will make cocktails because they want to be part of the local community. And that is one of their ways of giving back. And in that sense, everybody identifies with Bella Moonshine, with Richmond, Virginia. And in that way, everybody wins. Yeah, I, I am such a big fan of Main Street businesses yeah. uh, and, and small businesses because like you said, with high-tech, high-growth startups, there is a finite lifespan. And I also believe that if you are uh, a small business that is looking to grow, uh, you know, compared to this uh, high-tech, high-growth startup, you actually are going to make true wealth for yourself. And mm -hmm. especially for immigrant entrepreneurs, uh, immigrants start businesses at a higher rate because that is their only avenue to wealth creation. Mm -hmm. They they can't get these jobs that require skills or uh, fluency in language that, that they find as a barrier. And when you look at high growth, high tech startups, it becomes almost like a, a gamble versus if you're trying to start a, start a small business, you have to address the problem of cash flow. You have to un understand how to hire people. You have yeah. to understand how to make payroll. Like these are real problems that every small business, over 30 million of them, deal with on a single on every single day right and i think that uh, my goal is to shine a light into small businesses and entrepreneurship saying that entrepreneurship is about wealth creation mm -hmm. uh, we can define it in many ways we can define it as uh, bringing ideas to life scaling ideas etc but at the core of it if you're not in entrepreneurship for wealth creation you're in it for all the wrong reasons if you are to kind of create a high-tech startup that can get acquired, a, a fraction of them do. If you are in it to get investment for your idea, ideas don't generate investment, right? Traction does. So there's all of these fallacies that have kind of taken away the limelight from this everyday entrepreneur who is just out there to create wealth for their family. 
and so that's part of my mission and you know you articulate it so well so thank you for uh highlighting your uh, perspective on such an important topic that i think we're just getting started on absolutely thank you and you know david you really hit the nail on the head. I think the reason we have these ideas about these unicorn startups is really a matter of storytelling. They are these success stories that are hyped through the news, but what's the last time you saw a small business success story that was not in the human interest part of the newspaper, but actually made the front page for supporting a local soccer team or creating wealth in their community that goes beyond just money and evaluation, but by actually being a pillar of the community. So once again, there's a lot of storytelling yet to be done about small and medium-sized local Main Street businesses in our communities because they really represent what a community is all about. Uh, what does 2021 look like for Annika Horn? What is the big thing you're working on? And two, uh, if you had to pass on one or two words of wisdom to emerging ecosystem practitioners, what would you tell them that, you know, if they didn't do, they could probably scale faster or have fewer bruises? Uh, and then we would love to know also how we can follow your journey. Absolutely. So in 2021, I am working on training programs for ecosystem builders. So anyone from economic development to accelerators and incubators to really do two things. Number one, bring about professional excellence. So learning from best in class ecosystem builders how to do this work exceptionally well, but also winning what I call personal mastery. So finding a way to offset all this heart and purpose-driven work with a lifestyle that allows you to do it long-term, which leads to the advice that I have for emerging ecosystem builders and, and really anyone in this field who gives a damn. I think we all have to be very, very clear about our purpose and why we do this work. As we saw with COVID, there are a lot of potholes that we are navigating. And I think if you don't know 100% why you are doing this work, it's going to be very hard to hang on and continue doing this work. So my recommendation for anyone in this field is know why you do what you do and invest in that part. And that means also taking breaks and recovering and finding inspiration from people around you and connecting with peers who understand what it's like that you're trying to do. And how can we connect with you and follow your story? Um, you can find Social Venturers at socialventurers.com. You can also find it on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I'm always happy to connect with folks who resonate with this line of thinking, um, either on LinkedIn, Annika Horn, or AnnikaHorn.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. So whoever wants to find me or Social Venturers, I'm out there. Come and find me, connect, and let's have a chat. Well, thank you so much for spending this afternoon with us talking about your vision and the work that you're doing and also that purpose-driven journey that you're on. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, David. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Ponraj. Special thanks to Annika Horn for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Fritcher. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. 
all Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.